Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week that framed the question, can there be too much news? After an extended standoff during which the world tried to gauge his intentions, Russian President Vladimir Putin made his brutal move midweek. He first annexed two slices of Ukraine with largely Russian populations, and then, all the while arguing NATO and the United States were the true aggressors, mounted a full-on invasion of free Ukraine. The world suddenly was watching 24-7 as the Russian army marched towards three Ukrainian cities, encountering surprisingly strong resistance, though it seemed only a matter of time. The West imposed a package of sanctions, including on Putin personally, and world opinion was strongly on Ukraine's side. Even, something that may have caught Putin by surprise, demonstrations against the war inside Russia, where they are illegal. What would have dominated the news in any other week seemed almost a distraction as Biden on Friday announced his selection to replace retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. If confirmed, as seems likely, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will be the first African-American woman ever to sit on the Supreme Court, though her confirmation will do little to affect the essential hammerlock that five conservative justices continue to exercise on the high court's decisions. Former President Donald Trump had a legal roller coaster ride, absorbing the effects of two strong adverse decisions that put him on the brink of having to testify or take the Fifth Amendment, both about his essential business practices in the Trump organization and his involvement in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. Then, out of the blue, a long, looming criminal investigation in Manhattan seemingly collapsed with the abrupt resignation of its two top prosecutors, apparently over a disagreement with the new district attorney about the merits of the case. With these bombs going off all around, we badly need calm, seasoned professionals to put it all in perspective and supply thoughtful analysis. And fortunately, we have an awesome group to turn to in this episode of Talking Feds, all returning guests, and they are Katie Benner, who covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she shared a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, she worked at the Times' San Francisco Bureau, Bloomberg View, and Fortune magazine, Thank you, as always, for joining us, Katie. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. David Jolly, been a while. David served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2014 to 2017 and held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member. Since leaving, he's worked outside the Congress as an attorney and political consultant. Today, he can often be seen as a policy and politics analysis on MSNBC and CNN. Thank you very much, David Jolly, for returning to Talking Feds. Hey, Harry, it's always good to be with you, Harry. And Michael Schmidt, a Washington correspondent for the New York Times, as well as a national security contributor for MSNBC and NBC News. He was part of two teams that won Pulitzer Prizes in 2018 
And in 2017, he won the Livingston Award for Young Journalists. Michael is also the author of the best-selling book, Donald Trump versus the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President, a struggle that is ongoing. Michael Schmidt, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's begin with Ukraine. We're now in the sort of 24-7 period of explosive videos and minute-by-minute analysis of Putin's war on Ukraine. Rather than even try to revisit or recapitulate that commentary, I'd like to just focus on a few overarching questions about which there's really been some pronounced disagreement among both political officials and commentators. The analyses seem all over the map. Let's start with President Emmanuel Macron of France, who said in an address last week on Thursday morning, Last night's events, and that meant the invasion in earnest of Ukraine by Putin, are a turning point in the history of Europe and of our country. They will have lasting, profound consequences for our lives. Do you guys agree? And why or why not? I do agree. And I I think what the world is learning, and I think many of us had questions, is were we about to see something similar to the annexation of a territory like Crimea, which though sovereign land was an annexation that then stopped, if you will. And you saw the U.S. and the West struggle even then with how to respond to it. Do we use sanctions simply as a retaliatory tool, but ultimately admit that Putin is just going to walk into a territory and annex it? Was it going to be that or is it going to be a war that leads to the taking of a capital of Ukraine? And it appears to be the latter. And in that lens, this is a generational moment. And I think it requires a generational response. I think the tools that the United States and the U.S. typically use in these moments need to be dramatically ramped up to recognize what Putin intends us to be, which is a generational moment. This is not a, a 2022 issue where sanctions are sufficient. I think the West needs to respond with a generational response, just as Putin intends to accomplish what is a generational moment for Russia. Yeah, I agree with David. Also, keep in mind that Europe has been working for decades to prevent something like this from happening, basically, ever since World War II. It has tried to figure out various ways, both military and economic, to create a unified Europe that included bringing more nations into NATO. Of course, Russia has said it's a provocation, but this is something that has been a longtime project of Europe that is now possibly coming to a halt. So in that case, it's also an incredibly pivotal moment. And you have to wonder what's going to happen to security and whether or not that once-in-a-generation response can be achieved, given all of the new vectors that we're seeing right now. This is not just something that's going to be a physical altercation, a physical war. You have, in addition to sanctions, the specter of cyber threats and attacks on all sides coming at various European nations, launched from places like Russia and other foreign countries that have caused the United States problems, launched in the United States. So the United States is also not completely impervious to attack in ways that it was before. And Europe, also, its own defenses are more porous than I think they were decades ago when they were facing the same sorts of questions about whether or not you could have a unified continent. I think there's a... Simplicity is not the right word. Singularity isn't either. But in that area... Part of this that I think makes it such a captivating story and why I think it's really captivated so many people is that in some ways it comes down to one individual's view of the world, and that's Vladimir Putin. 
And it comes down to one individual's decision. Even in our own democracy, when a president decides to do something, even when Bush decided to invade Iraq in 2003, he went to Congress and Congress passed something. They went to the UN. In this sense, this is truly one individual who looks hellbent on trying to recreate one of the greatest conflicts in American history, which was the Cold War. And we're trying to predict American intelligence. The Biden administration is coming out and laying out its intelligence about what this one individual plans to do. And the fact that it just comes down to this one man's intentions and beliefs and larger goals of recreating the USSR, I just find particularly um, compelling. As a human story, the week as we waited, will he, won't he, oh, he's maybe annexing, oh, it's a full-scale invasion. It was this singular focus on the psyche of one guy and even suppositions that he himself wasn't sure what he wanted to do and everything hung in the balance as people tried to sort of psychoanalyze. One follow-up on that. So, you know, back and forth, back and forth, and commentaries that Putin himself doesn't know even today, and Applebaum and others have said why he's in the war. In retrospect, as you look at this back and forth, is there anything that could have been done to prevent the invasion? I think by our own choosing. And the question is, should we have concerned ourselves with what might happen or not? First of all, I can tell you this was not a whim of Vladimir Putin. Anyone who studies military logistics, what they did to launch the conflict required a year of military planning. So the notion that somehow this was a will he, won't he is absolutely not true. Now, time what was the timing of it, I think, is where we saw the intelligence become very public. But Vladimir Putin had this intent, and you can go back to Crimea, you can go back to the other actions. We knew that Vladimir Putin was a bad actor. And to Michael's point, this is one person who hopes to replicate the era of the USSR. And we have known that for a decade. Now, the question is, what did we choose to do about it? And what is the appetite for a U.S. that may have chosen to do more? Should we have done more to actually create a permanent military presence, an allied Western presence in Ukraine as a way to confront this? Or would that have been the tipping point to launch the Cold War? And I think policymakers, Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican, writ large, kind of decided this did not merit the type of response of an intervention by the U.S. and the West. But to my point of this being a generational moment, I do think now it does. Rather than the world focusing on sanctions and President Biden focusing on sanctions, I think this is the time you make the announcement of a dramatically escalated permanent U.S. presence, not a war footing, but stand up expanded installations around Ukraine. If it's Poland, if it's other countries, just as we have standing presence in Germany, Japan, other places around the world, Look, that's an effort that takes one, three, five years to really build out those installations. But that's the way that Vladimir Putin is thinking about this. And if the U.S. thinks about this as, oh, now he's taking Ukraine, let's sanction him, it begs the question, what next? And it gets to the part of your question, which is, we didn't do in the last 10 years anything sufficient to stop Putin. Maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't have. But if we don't do anything over the next 10 years, we have further empowered Putin to do what he chooses to do next. 
I think that's so interesting because one of the criticisms of Biden right now is that he's implicitly saying, we don't believe that Ukraine and fighting for Ukraine is within the United States' vital national security interests, which it's hard to imagine somebody saying that decades ago, but seems to be his statement. Even when he said that there was no way he was going to allow the U.S. military to extricate American citizens from Ukraine if something went wrong. And he said, basically, because once you have Americans with guns pointing at Russians with guns, then you have World War III and we're just not going to do that. And so, David, I'm really curious. Do you think that the misstep was not being more responsive when Russia annexed Crimea? Do you think that the West should have moved more assertively and more quickly to bring nations like Ukraine more fully in allegiance with the West in some ways? You know, Do you think that there are things that could have been done to have mitigated this that could still in some way be done? So in the basket, the arsenal of tools, if you will, there are sanctions and then there is arming Ukraine. And I think around the Crimea debate, you saw this increased escalation of should we give additional, frankly, training troops, if you will, and also hardware and weaponry. And that is now part of the call as well. But that also is a limitation of itself. I think very frankly, right and left in America has always taken the posture that Ukraine does not merit the U.S. putting active warfighting troops in, to use Biden's terms, guns pointing at guns. But if Kiev falls and Ukraine falls, I just don't think we have a choice. And I actually don't think it's a bridge too far. There's a reason we have such a strong permanent installation, two of them actually in Germany. There's a reason we're in Italy. There's a reason we're around the West and in Asia. It is to provide a stabilizing presence of U.S. forces. It is not to engage in war. But it is to suggest that in the absence of a U.S. presence, a strong U.S.-led Western alliance, that the West is more vulnerable. And I think that's the lesson of what we're seeing this week. The West is more vulnerable as a result of what Vladimir Putin has done. And we don't have a choice but to respond to that by increasing our presence then throughout the region. And not just more vulnerable militarily, but also more vulnerable in this sort of ideological way, too. I've seen bits and pieces of this argument. I'll just try to bring it together as well as I can. This is not necessarily my argument, but bits and pieces I've seen online. When Biden said in his speech, we're taking this stand is because as Americans, we stand up to bullies and we defend freedom. We do what's right, essentially. It was a really moral call to action. And there are questions about whether or not the United States lost the kind of moral authority to make that statement, not just on the world stage, but internally, too, in the United States. Over, if you look at, I mean, the 20th century, we're only a couple of decades in, but within the bounds of the 20th century, you do wonder, is that the message the United States has shown through its actions, both domestically and internationally, that that is indeed what the United States stands for? So in some ways, this moment is a true test of that kind of statement, which some are saying is a 20th century kind of idea. Along the lines of what Katie was saying, and not that everything has to be looked at through the lens of Trump, but let's for a moment just take a step back. There are two things that I sort of understand better today about Trump and what went on during the Trump presidency after watching what has unraveled. One is, is that Ukraine was a country and an issue that popped up throughout the Trump administration. And it popped up in the Mueller investigation and it popped up in impeachment. And what we're seeing in what's going on here is just how important it was to Putin. I don't know if I appreciated that as much as I do at this moment. 
So Ukraine was a country that didn't get the attention that Russia got, but it was something that popped up in all of these really important things. And it's just striking to see how much it means to Putin. The second thing that I've often come back to on Trump is just how determined Trump was to pull the United States out of NATO. When John Kelly left the White House and he talked to others about his time there, he said that one of his greatest accomplishments, he thought, was simply keeping the United States in NATO and stopping Trump from pulling out of NATO. There's so much that went on in the Trump administration. It's like hard to think, oh, what's so important and what's not important. But wow, the impact that, you know, if Trump had had his way in terms of NATO and how Trump helped undermine NATO just in general, you know, obviously the United States is still in NATO and John Kelly was successful. One of his greatest successes is stopping something from happening, which is sort of a theme we see in the Trump administration. But NATO is a weaker institution because of Trump. And NATO has probably not had such a confrontation like this in maybe its lifetime or certainly a long time. Yeah, this certainly does speak to the legitimacy of NATO. It's a great point. And tying it with Katie's, I actually think we were hearing not long ago that because of Trump's fecklessness and hostility, the United States moral authority had been eroded and we were really going to have to prove to our old allies that we were you know, in the game and could be leaders and maybe they wouldn't go for it anymore. The proof, I think, of this week is very much to the contrary. I think you're right, David, that the hand we're playing is a pretty small one. But nevertheless, I think the U.S.'s authority or place as the first among equals in some ways is being reestablished. I want to get back to your point, David. Right now, it seems to me with what Biden has said and maybe just where we are in history, wars of the Afghanistan sort seem to be untenable. It was very striking. You tweeted out that sanctions are just sophisticated capitulation. And that was by way of introducing this thought of a greater military presence in not just Ukraine, but maybe Poland and Romania. Can you expand on what you mean a little? And and is it your sense that at least right now, we just don't have the cards to play once invasion occurs? Well, I think we do have the cards to play. And I agree with everything that's been said about Trump. Listen, I'm the first person to say that Trump weakened NATO and he's a security threat to the West today. But this is also Joe Biden's moment. And I would, in this lane, link Joe Biden with all Western leaders, right? This is a security issue for the West, of which the U.S. has traditionally taken a leadership role. When I say sanctions or capitulation, it's because it's an acknowledgement that the West is willing to see Ukraine fall. There is no military response to this. And as Katie asked and pointed out, maybe it's because legitimately in the U.S. over the last decade, there simply wasn't an appetite for us to create a posture to defend Ukraine. There may not have been the political appetite. There may not have been the agreement among the Western alliance. But over the last 10 years, if we had the debate over whether there was an appetite to or not, that debate's now changed. We don't have a choice. We simply don't have a choice. Putin has shown us what he intends to do. And if Ukraine falls, a country with 40 million people, 40 million people, their sovereign land being taken from them in the West, doing nothing except sanctions. Mm. What do you think Putin takes from that? Let Putin sit on the sideline for another five or 10 years, and then what's his next target? And so that's where I do say 
everything being true about Trump and his failures, his weakening of the Western alliance. This is Joe Biden's moment. And rather than standing there and announcing sanctions, Joe Biden needs to show us that he is willing to commit the might of the United States to stopping the encroachment of a despot authoritarian Vladimir Putin willing to commit war crimes on people and continue to march west. Mm -hmm. We can't allow that to happen. We've seen what happens when we allow that. It's not a crisis Joe Biden asked for, and I'm not faulting him for the initial response, but this is the moment in which he has to rise to the occasion and recognize this generational moment. They're going to do a pivot like this. They probably have to do it in short order, yeah? Yes, in short order. It's one opinion, right? And I'm speaking broadly to say, if we increased our permanent presence, we have permanent military installations throughout Western Europe that are there for generations for a reason, not on a war footing. And so it could take several years to grow those installations. I say Poland is an example. Maybe there's a better place. But to begin to shore up that Western border of Ukraine to demonstrate to the world that we've drawn a line, that Putin cannot come any further. That's not to say we're committing American men and women to war. It is saying we're recognizing we have to increase our security posture in the region. When you say that this is a critical moment for Biden, another way to look at it is that it's a critical moment for him domestically here. He's already acknowledged with Afghanistan that there is not an appetite within the American public to be at war. We were in war for decades. A lot of younger people, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, did not really understand we were at war in Afghanistan. It has been going on that long, and the public is so detached from that sort of military action. So in order for Biden to come out and, for example, say something at the State of the Union, make this sort of big pivot, he would have to be going against sort of the zeitgeist of the American public, which is going to make it really difficult for him. And so it's a crucible moment for him. David Jolly, you were in Congress from what, 2014 to 2017? When you listen to your talk about how the Biden administration should approach Ukraine, it is a very 2014 to 2017 Republican Party view of how an American president should probably be tougher. You're essentially arguing for a more robust, it sounds like, American response and presence. The message that you're relaying is not the clear message that comes out of today's Republican Party at all. But you sound like John McCain or someone of that type than anyone else in Congress today. Am I right? Or Democrat John Murtha or Republican Bill Young. My views are more informed by my 20 years of staff experience between 94 and 14 before I was an elected member. And in that era, First of all, you wouldn't have seen the political division between R's and D's on the Hill. The unified message from Congress to Biden would say, we're here to provide the resources that your administration comes to us to ask for. That's what's in my political DNA, which is we don't get to choose our crisis, right? And I'm not suggesting we send troops into Ukraine, but I'm saying leaders either lead public opinion or you follow it. And to Katie's point, we're not interested in increasing our opportunity for conflict. I agree with that. I'm just saying we don't have a choice. And unfortunately, I think Congress has become less and less of a serious institution over the last 10 years. The Republican Party has become less serious of a party. And so I don't think the voices of leadership within the Republican Party are there on the responsibility curve, much less the ideological one. But this is where 
leaders have to lead. And is it Biden? Is it Schumer? Is it McConnell? Is it McCarthy? I don't know what that coalition looks like. But if not 10 years, we're going to look back and say, Vladimir Putin has the upper hand on the West right now. And it's our fault for not responding. Another thing that never would have happened 10 years ago would be at the moment of attack for the other party to come out and completely trash the president. Politically, there's going to be voices within the White House who are going to say, if you do the right thing and lead, there could be political consequences. But it's a very good point. Katie and Michael raise it as well. Biden may not have the sheer political capital necessary for what I'm suggesting. He's got a lot of headwinds right now. And so what has fallen upon his shoulders is something that he may or may not be able to bring the American opinion to where it needs to be. And that's a cultural moment for us as a country more than it is a political moment for the president. Although you could imagine his thinking that and still actually choosing to do it anyway as kind of his moment in history. That'd be really interesting. I just have a question for David and Mike, just to touch on before we leave this topic, is the role of China. I think the other way in which this the geopolitical landscape has changed since the last time we saw an aggressive Russia trying to expand is that its ally was an economically weak, insular country. China is now an economic powerhouse. It is almost impossible for the United States to curb China on any front, military, economic. We certainly can't sanction that country. And China is working with Russia. So especially on the sanctions issue, you know, I I talked to somebody who used to work at the World Bank yesterday, and she pointed out that China has set up concessional and non-concessional loans to Russia from their own state-owned policy banks. And those are insulated from things like Western penalties. So they have state-to-state sanctions-proof relationships in place. And Russia has been working on settlements in renminbi, basically since Crimea. So how does China, both as an economic powerhouse and a source of funds, change what America can truly do in terms of curbing Russia? I'd say we start with the smarter of the two panelists. Michael? (laughs) I have no answer. But what it reminds me of, the average American citizen can understand the political science term of a unipolar world right? Where the United States was dominant as it was after the Cold War. The average American can understand what the Cold War looked like. I mean, it was a really you know defining time in American history. What I think we're entering and what Katie's describing is a multipolar world. And that is just a new set of muscles and thinking in ways that the United States cannot flex its muscles in the way it did before, certainly not as it could in a unipolar world. And is a new footing for us as a country. And politically, it will take some time, my guess is, to sort of sort out how Americans view themselves in that multipolar world. Because it's just something that, you know, hasn't really existed since before World War II. It's not an answer to any question, but more like politically as a country, we need to see what does that mean to the average American? I would say, Katie, to your point, My comments about strategy, every action has a reaction. And so I would suggest we have to react to what Putin's done. We shouldn't leave off the table that should we make a move that increases our posture in the West, there might be another domino to fall. China might express its interest or its intent now and make a geopolitical move as well. And that then raises questions of escalation that we would need to ensure we're prepared for. And I do think that's what the Biden administration is wrestling with. 
what can the U.S. do? What can the West do that is a response that doesn't merit a dramatic escalation that then changes this and moves us into a territory that is scary for the world? One of the things, and this is actually where I wanted to pivot to as an exit question here, is part of the thinking could be the then what, David, you've posed the possibility of this being a prelude to a greater expansion, greater threat to democracy, weakening of NATO. And maybe that's right. What about, though, the possibility that he goes in now, but does he have a tenable end game that doesn't involve being drawn into the quagmire of insurgency? Ukraine's pretty much like Western Europe now. I mean, anyone under 30 never even grew up in the whole shadow of the Soviet Union. Once he comes in and takes control, and even if he installs a quizzling government, can he stay? Look, I I think unless the Western response pushes him back out, and whether it's economically crippling because of sanctions or because there's a military response, which I doubt we will ever see, that's the only, only way he would be removed from Ukraine, Russia would go back. And so that's where I think the West is just resigned to him taking Ukraine. And I think Putin knows Ukraine's a sufficient bounty right now. He'll take it. And it might be a decade before his next move occurs. I I think he'd be foolish to do anything more than what he's doing. But in the face of a Western response that is, I believe, capitulation, maybe because there's no better response, I think he's going to take Ukraine and keep it for the generation we're entering now. Katie, Michael, you agree? Yeah, I mean, I agree. And it's just incredibly sad. The United States alone has poured so many resources into trying to create a judicial system in Ukraine, law and order, to create strength there in terms of just this, you know, fabric of this democratic civic society. It's it's incredibly tragic. It sounds like this is going to be measured not by weeks, but by months or even by years. It won't be going away. And maybe it is a basic adjustment to the world order. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we're going to discuss the Texas abortion statute and the legal principles, especially sovereign immunity, that have resulted in there being no challenges to the statute, notwithstanding that it's patently unconstitutional. And to tell us about it, we're really pleased to welcome Curtis Steigers. For the past 30 years, the singer, songwriter, saxophonist, and guitarist has been making records that confound those who try to categorize his music or put him in a box. Curtis Steigers has had several top 10 hits, sung an Emmy-nominated TV theme song, recorded a track for one of the biggest-selling pop albums of all time, and released nine critically acclaimed award-winning jazz albums. So... I give you Curtis Steigers and the sovereign immunity principles behind the Texas abortion statute. Chief Justice Roberts aptly called the Texas abortion statute enforcement scheme unprecedented. He meant that it was designed so that courts couldn't review it or strike it down as unconstitutional. But how do challenges to possibly unconstitutional state statutes ordinarily proceed? These challenges are difficult because, like the federal government, states are sovereigns under our federalist system. As a result, they have immunity from lawsuits, meaning they can't be sued without their consent. 
This immunity flows from the nature of sovereignty itself and is memorialized in the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which forbids suits in federal court against a state by a citizen of another state. This concept is called sovereign immunity. It means that when a private citizen is injured by a state statute, for example, a woman's constitutional right to abortion is violated by the Texas abortion statute, she can't automatically sue the state because it's a basic attribute of sovereignty only to be sued where and when the sovereign consents. However, courts also recognize several exceptions to sovereign immunity. First, when a state agrees to be sued. This happens more than you'd think. Most states have statutes that allow citizens to sue the government for various things, like if government workers cause damage to their property or there's a car accident involving a state employee. Second, when an individual sues under a law passed to enforce rights secured by the 14th Amendment. Why? Because the 14th Amendment fundamentally altered the federal state structure and put important limitations on 11th Amendment immunity. Third, when the state commits an unconstitutional act or passes an unconstitutional law, an individual can sue the official in charge of enforcing the law. But, and this is key, the Supreme Court has held that the individual can only obtain an injunction or an order from the court forbidding the unconstitutional action, but not damages. This doctrine is known as ex parte young for the Supreme Court case that developed it. The doctrine is a court-created fiction. The party sues the official, so the veneer of state sovereignty is still preserved. But the action, if successful, stops the state, i.e. the responsible official for the state, from enforcing the unconstitutional law. This third way is typically how a statute such as the Texas abortion statute would be challenged. The reason this standard approach didn't work in the Texas case is the Texas legislature combined its restrictive abortion law with an enforcement scheme designed specifically to elude it by declaring that no state official had enforcement authority. Instead, the law specified that any third party anywhere, but not a state official, could enforce it by suing for a $10,000 bounty on anyone who violated the terms of the statute. This is the unprecedented part, and it's designed to get around the ex parte young doctrine. The Supreme Court may well strike the strategy down or extend ex parte young to cover it. But as of yet, it has not itself been invalidated, so private parties can't deploy the normal ex parte young strategy. That means that there is no state official to enjoin, but still a strong prospect of enforcement by a private bounty hunter, which has proven enough to deter providers from offering abortions in Texas. For Talking Feds, I'm Curtis Steigers. Thank you very much, Curtis Steigers, for explaining that pretty complicated idea. Curtis's new album, This Is Life, was recently released. It's a collection of reconstructed versions that he describes as a celebration of three decades of musical exploration, evolution, and growth. It's a look back at 13 albums, thousands of concert performances, and millions of miles on the road. This episode of Talking Feds is brought to you by the American Constitution Society. I'm Russ Feingold, president of ACS, the nation's foremost progressive legal organization, committed to ensuring that the U.S. Constitution 
our laws and legal systems, our forces for protecting our democratic legitimacy and improving the lives of all people. ACS is powered by our nationwide network of over 250 student and lawyer chapters engaging on national, state, and local issues. Right now, we are focused on diversifying the federal courts, building a progressive pipeline of next-generation lawyers, and advocating for Supreme Court reform. ACS is for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, because our laws and our courts impact all of us. You can learn more about ACS by following us on social media at ACS Law, or by visiting our website, acslaw.org. Be sure to also check out our podcast, Broken Law, about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to another little bit of news that uh, happened just this morning as we were preparing for the podcast, which is Biden has announced his nominee to fill the seat of retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. And it is Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Who is she? So Judge Jackson is a really interesting figure. She, First of all, she's going to be the first public defender to serve on the Supreme Court should she be confirmed. Impeccable credentials. She went to Harvard Law School. She has worked almost every job you can imagine in the legal field. She clerked for Justice Breyer, and then she went on to serve in the D.C. Circuit, considered the second most powerful court, basically almost a feeder court to the Supreme Court in many ways. So again, her credentials are extremely impeccable, and she's also a centrist. She believes in law and order. She comes from a family of law enforcement. Her brother, her uncles were police officers in Miami and Baltimore. She understands the need to have strong law enforcement. She just kind of in so many ways has it all because of the way she personally and professionally has touched the legal system. And she definitely believes in precedent. So you're not going to see her be a move fast activist force on the bench. And she has a very sparkling personality. So if you saw the speech that she gave today when Joe Biden announced her. She begins her remarks by first thanking God. She leads with her personal life. She says, I would not be here today if it were not for God. She later thanks her family. And she is really, really eager for the American public to know who she is and what she values. So, I mean, that's, I I would say that's Judge Jackson in a nutshell. I think all that's right. And in terms of, you know, she brings the defense perspective. The last person really was Thurgood Marshall. And I was clerking for him at the time when he was doing criminal cases that really mattered. She's also been on the sentencing commission. Breyer's going to be gone now. That's an important aspect of the law for them. She's also a longtime district court judge. Only Sotomayor has been on the district court among the current justices. For a sort of feel of what's going on, that's a big contribution as well. We've left out in some ways the biggest fact, which is she was recently confirmed with three Republicans, which is what counts as bipartisanship in these days. In terms of the partisanship, what I was interested to see if it was going to play out was if Biden had nominated Judge Childs of South Carolina and someone who was being pushed by Lindsey Graham, and essentially Biden would be picking someone who Graham was supporting, what would that have meant? And I think Biden is someone who does grasp for an older version of Washington that doesn't exist anymore in bipartisanship. And I was wondering how much that was going to tug on him, even despite the comments that Graham had made related to Biden's son. I was wondering how much 
there was the possibility of that playing out and what that was going to look like if Biden and Graham were both going to be standing behind the same person in the Rose Garden, you know, that image. Obviously, that didn't happen. And I was thinking, how much does Biden really want to try and create that bipartisan moment? And he obviously thinks he has the votes to do it without doing it. Actually, let's expand this question. What do you see as the likelihood that the Republicans fight this in a ferocious way? Obviously, there'll be some hot rhetoric and things about judicial activism and the like, but they're not going to win it. It's not a very consequential move for the court. It stays at 6-3. Do you think it'll be a fairly quiet, at least within context of modern confirmation processes, overall kind of uh, confirmation? I think you'll see what I call the for-profit side of the Republican Party <laughs> light their hair on fire and, and tell the world that this is a terrible pick and it's going to be the end of the world, right? So everything from your media voices to actually senators, probably campaign teams will be fundraising off of this pick, suggesting why it's the end of the court as we know it. But I don't know that you'll see the Republican caucus of the Senate writ large really come out and try to communicate to the country as to why Justice Jackson is unqualified. Because the one thing Joe Biden did with this pick is take the questions around qualifications off the table. He had already achieved a bold pick by saying, I'm going to pick a woman of color. He didn't need to reach for somebody that he couldn't otherwise justify nine years on the bench from Harvard Law to Supreme Court clerkship. Somebody just eminently qualified for this job. And as Katie said, just very personally likable, somebody that it's hard to go out and attack. So, you know, when it comes down to votes, I think Collins and Murkowski probably still in play because they did vote for her along with Lindsey Graham before. I think you'll see the Trumpism effect ensure that maybe even Graham doesn't vote for her a second time. I don't think you'll see many Republican votes. We're out of the era where you saw Scalia get approved unanimously and Bader Ginsburg, I think 97 votes. You saw that trail off. Kagan, Sotomayor were kind of in the in the 60s, Roberts maybe at 70. But you know, by the time we got to the last five years or so, these are split partisan votes. And I think we'll see that largely when it comes to the votes. You'll hear the Roger Wicker voices that you've already heard but they'll just kind of make fools of themselves throughout this process. At the end of the day, Jackson should be and will be confirmed. Yeah, it's so interesting, too. She also has support of the police, which is a big constituency within the Republican Party. The Fraternal Order of Police immediately put out a statement, and the national president said that when Judge Jackson was the head of the Sentencing Commission, she led efforts to reduce mandatory minimums and to retroactively apply sentencing for certain drug crimes. And of course, you could imagine they were at loggerheads. They were not in accord. But what he said in his letter is, quote, the FOP testified before the commission on several occasions, voicing our concerns and that she was incredibly responsive. Quote, from our analysis of Judge Jackson's record in some of her cases, we believe she has considered the facts and applied the law consistently and fairly on a range of issues. There's little doubt that she has the temperament, intellect, legal experience, and family background, keep in mind, many members of her family are police officers, to have earned this appointment. Now, this is going to be really hard for Republicans to push back on. You have the police coming out and saying they find that even somebody they have disagreed with on huge issues in the past is their pick for the bench. And I think that this point of view and the fact that this is how she comports herself is important to the Supreme Court. You can say, of course, it will be 6-3, and so you will not change the balance of power between conservative and progressive ideas. 
But to have somebody who is known for reaching across the aisle and building consensus is in some ways not only the best that we can hope for right now, but is something that you do want to see on the bench. You want to see that comedy. You want to see somebody who's willing to say, how can we come to a consensus? And that impulse, I think, is extremely important. I was surprised, David, that you said Collins and Murkowski are in play and Graham probably. I would have thought that those votes are sewn up because you need to give some reason for switching sides. And of course, unless something happens to a Democrat health-wise, it wouldn't change the result. Do you think it really will be a vote that the administration will have to fight for, the three people who just voted for her? They had other good candidates. And at the end of the day, it was, I think, that factor that really kept her front runner from post to post. Sure. Look, I I think presuming you have all 50 Democrats, which is a presumption simply because we don't have a statement from all Democratic senators at this point, presuming you'll have all 50, then you're looking at those bonus senators from the Republican caucus. I think Murkowski and Collins naturally by ideology, but also because they supported her for the D.C. circuit, would probably be consistent. I'd put Graham in the maybe, and I actually expect Graham to flip to a no simply because the shadow of Trump's Republican Party will be so great and the shadow of Tucker Carlson will be so great. I know, Lindsay, he's just maniacal enough that he probably knew when he voted for her for the D.C. circuit, he'd be voting against her one day for the Supreme Court because he just has this kind of crazy approach to politics. It actually reflects Donald Trump's approach in some weird ways. I think he's a maybe probably ends up being a no on it. He has shown he doesn't care all that much about consistency. All right. There you have it. It'll be, you know, a few weeks until she actually has her real introduction to the country. But I think Katie nailed it when she said she has a very winning, warm personality. And I think that will be immediately apparent. All right. Speaking of warm and winning personalities, not. Let's spend a few minutes with the former president. We have really a one-two punch of orders in civil cases that look like they might achieve what the January 6th committee and others have been foiled at, which is really force him to testify and might wind up taking the Fifth Amendment if he does. But do you agree with the commentators who see that as a watershed moment, these civil cases and the prospect that Trump has to sit for a deposition, or is it just one more opportunity for the escape artist? Time and time again, dating back to 2017, there have been similar conversations about how the walls are closing in on Trump. And in the same breath in which you're saying, oh, now he's going to have to sit for a deposition, you're you're mentioning, which I think an issue we're going to come to, the fact that the probably what was at least publicly thought to be the most robust criminal investigation into Trump looked like it disintegrated this week when the two prosecutors leading the case from the Manhattan DEA's office quit. It looked like Trump had had a terrible week last week with a a series of bad court decisions against him there in similar ways and the January 6th committee looking like it was gaining some momentum. The best criminal investigation that the left thought could hold Trump accountable, the New York one, now looks like it's off the table. Are we going to start talking about Georgia's state crimes again? 
first it was Mueller and then it was Michael Cohen and then it was the Manhattan DA and then it was Georgia State Crimes and now it's the January 6th investigation. Look, he's not president of the United States anymore, which means he has less power to insulate himself. But what appears to be the disintegration of that criminal case out of New York this week is a humongous deal for him. Mike, you're giving me real Charlie Brown and the football vibes. Yeah. I mean, it was the Steus Ex Machina moment. Does everyone agree that that case anyway is dead? The criminal case in, in Manhattan, the Alvin Bragg. In Manhattan, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think through Alvin Bragg's decision, non-decision, it, it was telling that Bragg really hasn't leaned in, frankly, to any damage control. I, I think that's an acknowledgement. He's happy to let this case go. I do think a very fascinating decision this past week was the denial of the motion to dismiss to allow the case brought by Swalwell and some other members against Trump in D.C. to go forward because what the judge said there is Donald Trump very well might be culpable. There might be liability of the former president for the events of January 6th. And what I really want to know in all of this, if we ever learn this, did Donald Trump know and where is that evidence that Trump knew actors like the Proud Boys and others would be embedded in the crowd on January 6th. Did Donald Trump have reason to know that violence could occur on January 6th? And he didn't do anything to change his behavior. In fact, he actually went forward with suggesting people go to the Capitol. Because I think of all things we know about Donald Trump, the people around him going into January 6th, this was a sophisticated plan that involved a lot of different elements. And What is telling about that judge's decision and refusing the motion to dismiss is he says, there's probably evidence out there that we deserve to see. And as one person, David Jolly, I'm curious to know what Donald Trump knew about the violent actors embedded in the crowd on January 6th. Yeah, I mean, 112 pages and totally meticulous. And, you know, his M.O. all his life has been to bluster and push back. But then when he has to, to settle like in the Trump University cases. I don't see Eric Swalwell and the other 10 members of the Congress who brought it settling because they're not doing it for the money. So they will push to have everything come out, even if it means his taking the Fifth Amendment, which is a possibility. All right, we leave him there for now and a week that was almost too full of news. We just have a minute or two left for our Talking Five feature where we take a question from a listener. Each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. The question is, when will Jackson get confirmed? Because I think there is going to be a little bit of a divergence of interest. The Senate and Congress are really hoping, the Dems anyway, to speed this through. And it's not clearly as much in the White House's interest. What opinion would you hazard about when Judge Jackson will become Justice Jackson? I always struggle with this, getting to the five words. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say, but then or I'm like, fewer. Sort of, so before the midterm elections, I think <laughs> midterm, I think that would actually be four words. There's a bold prediction from Michael Schmidt. <laughs> well, I got in under the five. Yeah. A similar theme, I, I would say, before the Memorial Day recess. And that's just a function of the congressional calendar. I think they'll want this done before the Memorial Day recess, going into a lot of other busy work on appropriations and budget over the summer. Yeah, fingers crossed early summer. They'll want it sooner. One more thing about her having just been confirmed. 
There's nothing terrible that will come out in a background investigation. I already know. Yeah, she's been basically fully vetted as of last year. So unless she's done something totally insane in the last 365 days, there's not much more to find out about her. All right. And I am going with April 28th. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Katie, David, and Michael. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes, they're simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with Jane Mayer, the New Yorker writer, on her piece about Ginny Thomas's political activism and its relation to her husband's role on the Supreme Court, and with Lori Levinson about California's new proposed gun legislation that copies the Texas SB8 enforcement model. And coming in the next few days are two separate one-on-ones about Katanji Brown-Jackson. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. We are pleased that this episode and all Talking Feds episodes are distributed and with special additional content to listeners on the Spectrum News app. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, or questions for me personally on the monthly Q&As that Patreon insiders have with me. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalenitano, and Emma Maynard. And thanks very much to Curtis Steigers for his explanation of the enforcement scheme of the Texas abortion statute. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.